This is an AMI podcast. Hey guys, it's Tuesday 31st of January 2023. I am Stephen Scott and this is Double Tap. And today we're going to talk all about the Assistive Technology Industry Association conference, which begins today in Florida. You're listening to Double Tap, your daily accessible technology show. Now, here's your host, Stephen Scott. Hello, everybody. Hope you're well today. And thank you so much for tuning in, for downloading, for subscribing, whatever the right term is these days for all this modern stuff. Uh, Yeah, listen, great to uh, be here today because this is a, a brilliant day. ATIA gets underway in Florida, Orlando. Sadly, I'm not live from there today. <laughs> Maybe next year. You never know. Uh, but certainly this year, not. Uh, but, you know, this does sound like a really interesting event. I must admit, I don't know a lot about ATIA. So we've got the CEO. I think he'll know something about it. David Dichter is his name. He is joining me on the show a bit later uh, to tell me all about it. Looking forward to that. Finding out what the big deal is. Uh, he's got a lot of opinions as well on the subject of Braille and the future of Braille and how Braille is sustainable, a conversation that many of you have wanted me to have on this show and uh, continue to have because there are so many aspects to the Braille conversation and sustainability is is definitely one of them. So we'll get into that with David Dichter today, CEO of the ATIA uh, Foundation and also the conference which begins today. Looking forward to learning all about that. But we start with... Breaking News. Breaking News. Do like breaking news. Nothing's broken, thank goodness. No, well, not today, anyway. Uh, <laughs> but we do have breaking news. Seeing AI has had a big update uh, dropped last night, and it now supports indoor navigation as part of the World Channel, if you've uh, gone there on the Seeing AI app. Of course, this runs on iPhones, and this particular feature will work on any iPhone running uh, iOS 14 or newer. Now, interesting, they do not... Uh, you do not have to have an iPhone with LiDAR in it for this to work. It, you don't need that. You can use this without LiDAR, which is brilliant. I tried it on my iPhone 13 mini, and I'll talk about that experience in a minute. But yes, you can now uh, essentially navigate indoors or create routes through a building. And then you can later follow that route, and it's guided by spatial audio cues. Now, I think the idea here is... Uh, that you really are better to use something like AirPods. And AirPods 3 and AirPods Pros are recommended. Uh, Of course, that may change because, as we know, with Soundscape, there are a number of different options available. For example, the Bose Frames, um, Sony Link Buds, they all come into the the mix. That's not mentioned yet. Maybe that will come with time. And it does sound like some of the features that were in Soundscape are being kind of built into as seeing AI now, which is kind of cool. Uh, that, that would be really great if they just merged the two together, right? If that was the eventual result of, of what happened to Soundscape, that'd be pretty cool. But that's not what's happening here. This is just for indoor navigation and setting routes, creating routes. So you can set up a route, you can do a route, uh, and then you can follow that route back. You can also, and this is cool, you could have someone else download the app say a sighted person, in an environment maybe you're going to, let's say you're going to um, visit an office in a different part of town. So say you work in Toronto and you have an office in Vancouver. You've never been to the Vancouver office before. And you'd like to find your way around. You'd like to know where the toilets are. You'd like to know where the kitchen is. Someone could walk around with their phone. They could record the route from the desk you're going to sit at to the kitchen, then from your desk to the bathroom, your desk to the door, to the the reception. They could record those routes and then they can send them to you. can share that route with you and send it to you on your device. So when you get there, you've got the routes. That's pretty cool, right? So that's nice. Um, I've tried it myself (laughs) for once. And and this deserves this, actually. This does deserve this. Breaking news. Breaking news. I actually did a demo for you. Slight problem, though. Um, the iPhone doesn't like screen recording when you've got the camera on, <laughs> which is kind of annoying. So I didn't have another device to hand to record what I was doing, so I will do it again for you, and I will let you hear uh, how it works. But um, actually, in advance of that, and possibly this is better, to be perfectly honest, uh, I actually have got a little demo to play you. This is actually from 
uh, Microsoft themselves, they've uh, put together this video, which is part of the tutorial that you get when you uh, open the app and, and open this feature for the first time. So this is from Microsoft themselves showing you how the feature works once you've set up a route. Indoor navigation is an exciting new feature which allows one person to lay down a trail of virtual waypoints. Someone can then follow the route later on by following the audio cues. You can think of this like laying down a trail of breadcrumbs and following them later on. First of all, let's switch to the World channel. Channel. Short text. World. Preview. If you're using a device with a LiDAR, you'll have buttons for filters and actions, and you'll find Indoor Navigation inside the Actions menu. Actions. Indoor Navigation. On other devices, you'll see Indoor Navigation right on the main screen. Here we have a list of all routes found nearby. As we swipe through Routes. Heading. We hear there's just one route. Break room to coffee bar. Button. Break room to coffee bar. So let's double tap it and select follow. Break alert. Follow. Button. Loading route. Now we hear a sound coming from the first waypoint and visually a series of balls stretching out along the route. Let's walk towards the sound and that pop indicates we've hit the first waypoint. Let's look with the camera left and right, and we can hear the location of the next waypoint. Let's keep going. There's another one. And another. And let's keep going. That success sound indicates we've reached our destination. And here we are at the coffee bar. That's a really quick overview of following a route with indoor navigation. This is really early technology, and we invite all feedback from the community. We want to know how you use this and how we can make it better. Yeah, and that's one thing about Microsoft. They're always listening, and they're always wanting your feedback. So, you know, if you do try this out, I certainly will be using it. I've got some trips coming up, and I really, I'm so glad this feature exists because, you know, I'm thinking about, for example, someone who gets to the hotel where I'm going before me, they could set a route up for me. And that could be really useful. Like, imagine having that in advance, maybe even calling the hotel and saying, hey, would you mind doing this? You know, I mean, they might not, but you know, if, you've, if you're going with someone that, I just think the possibilities there, just having that share capability is good. Now, one app, of course, that does this as well, uh, and I don't know about the share capability. I think it's possible for someone to do this uh, and share a route with you, but I could be wrong. Uh, that's the Clue app, C-L-E-W. And that's the other app, which I think is going to be impacted by this, no doubt. But you know what? There are 8 million far apps on the, <laughs> on the Amazon Echo and on the on the App Store, at least there used to be. So, you know, I think we can have two apps for, you know, indoor navigation. I think that's pretty cool. And, you know, if we can if we can make it that it's better as a result, then, you know, why not? So let's let's have more options out there, I think. So seeing AI is the app. Um of course lots of comments coming in already about this. Uh on Twitter especially people saying, you know what? When is it coming to Android? Come on, Android. <laughs> I think everyone would love to get Seeing AI over to Android, and I think that's something that would be brilliant to happen. Um, it really should be on Android by now, I would have thought. Uh, but yeah, so there you go. Great news uh, from Microsoft. So Seeing AI, uh, if you don't have the feature, go to the Apple App Store, search for Seeing AI, and check for the Update button. If it says Open as opposed to Update when you swipe to the button where you would essentially install it, um, if it says open, it's it's already upgraded. It's already updated. If it says update, double tap on that, and it will let you update the app, and uh, then you'll get this brand new feature. Then search under World Channel, and if you've got an iPhone 13, I've got an iPhone 13 Mini. Uh, if you swipe left, you just double tap there. It, it just says indoor navigation. As uh, as you heard there, of course, if you have a a phone with lidar in it, you may get some additional options. So yeah, tell me what you think. Um, Lots of you getting in touch as well. Uh, <laughs> Carrie says today, uh, the M2 Mac Mini is calling your name, Stephen. Stephen, you must buy it now. No, that's actually what the tweet says. Um, I think that's I think that's the conversation between me and the voices in my head, which is scarily accurate, if I'm honest. Uh, lots of you also uh, supporting my bid to get Humanware on here to talk about the uh, Victor. Uh, reader stream third generation 
Um, Aaron Linson says, I'll, I'll happily come on and talk about the new stream. I work at a US-based small AT company. I think that having a device to show off would make for a better show, though. Thoughts? Uh, well, I have definitely contacted you, Aaron, so I look forward to getting you on the show, and you can tell me all about what you know. Uh, but speaking of which, let's go straight to our voicemails, because I think we may have some of the answers already. Hello, this is Darren Platt from Bexley and Kent. Um, thank you for all the double taps, enjoying them. I'm ringing to let you know what I managed to find out about the stream for a generation from humanware mm. um, after your episode on Monday where you said you found it hard to find stuff. I looked on YouTube as you know, a shot in the dark to see if I could find anything. And there was a podcast by Jonathan Mosen. Um, I think it's called Mosen at Large on there. That's the title of the podcast. And he had an interview with Humanware about the stream for a generation. Um, as far as I can see, it's got double the internal memory 16 uh, gig. It's got a built-in rechargeable battery. You can't replace the battery yourself. I think it lasts about 15 hours. It's USB-C. It's mm. Bluetooth. It has a 3.5 headphone jack, and it retains the 3.5 mic input jack as well mm. because they said that when they did the victory the trek there was a backlash because they combined the two in one socket so they've uh, reintroduced the mic and the headphones as separate sockets it's more of a rubberized construction um the keyboard i believe feels rubbery that concerns me a little bit because I know sometimes rubber keyboards can be very temperamental and they get stiff with age and they wear out quicker. So I'm yeah. hoping it's still hard plastic underneath like the old stream, but rubberized coating, uh, because that does concern me a bit. It's about the same dimensions as the stream, pretty similar. Uh, it sounds like it's got the same button layout. Um, it has got a few more tweaks as to the recording capabilities. I can't remember exactly what they said, but I think it's a bit better than the other one. And uh, as I said, it can take up to a one terabyte SD card, apparently. Wow. There was also talk of them introducing Calibre and the RNIB services on there as well. Whether that will happen, I don't know. I don't believe it's going to have the capability of having where well, you can connect a USB stick directly to the stream, although I might be wrong. Um, they were talking about also having another radio internet service provider other than Utunes, but I don't know what's going to happen as of yet. We won't know until about April. They're saying it's going to come out in America about the middle of February whether that will apply to Canada and England as well, then I don't know, but I'm guessing it will probably be around here in England around about Easter time at the latest. They were talking of a price of about $550. Um, but don't quote me on that. It might be more or less than that. I don't know. Mm. I can't think of any more to say about it at this point in time, bearing in mind that I don't know much about it other than it's going to have Bluetooth as well as I've probably said. That's good. Um, uh, so until next time, that's as far as I know at the moment. This is Darren saying bye for now, and thank you. Bye. Oh, Darren, thank you. That is fantastic information that you've uh, scurried around and found for us. I really appreciate that. Uh, I'm glad they're talking to somebody uh, because I've reached out. Uh, maybe it is because it's US first, although isn't Jonathan Mosen from New Zealand? Anyway, okay. Uh, <laughs> who knows? But uh, hopefully we'll hear from Humanware soon. I have reached out on Twitter as well, trying to get their attention. Look, we've had Humanware on the show before. They're friends of our show. So I, I don't know why they're, they're silent on this with us in particular. I don't know why, but uh, hopefully... It's just an oversight. They've forgotten about us here at Double Tap and they will remember their friends here soon. Um, Kelly says on Twitter they will probably reveal the new product at ATIA this week and the website should go live with all the new info at that time. I hope you get them on the show. Yeah, well, that, that would be good, actually. And I, I guess this is usually the case, isn't it? There's usually a big event in the year, 
you know, whether it's CSUN or whether it's ATIA or whether it's you know one of the other events that happen, maybe the NFB or the ACB conventions, you know, and then that's often where these products come out. But uh, I would love to see more information on this because it is a product that I, I actually would buy this. I I, I must admit the rubberized keys thing does worry me as well. If I'm honest, Darren, um, I remember the first generation which had a kind of rubberized. It wasn't the keypad that was rubberized. The buttons were plastic, but it was the the body of it was actually. Uh, it's like a rubbery, it was horrible, because after a while it got very sticky and just, I don't know, something went horribly wrong with it. At least the one I had did. And before you start, there was nothing dodgy. It just got sticky because it got old. Brother myself. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, what else? I'm just checking my Twitter to see if there's anything else I should mention. Um, no, no, just suggestions I should buy an M2 Mac Mini. Fair enough. Um, I, I will be, I, it's unlikely I'm going to buy one, but then it's that, you know me, that doesn't mean anything. I said I wasn't going to buy an M2 MacBook Air and uh, line over there. Uh, okay, so <laughs> let's move on to another uh, voicemail. CC's been in touch with an update on the Freestyle Libra app. Today, folks, this is CC on the line from Montreal. You played uh, my previous message on Friday, January 27th. The Freestyle Libra app had gone haywire on Monday the 23rd. On Tuesday the 24th, I wasted another sensor, which are very costly, and the company was going to replace them. So the second sensor that I put on, I got all the error messages that said, no, this doesn't work, throw it away. But because they said they were going to send a new device to scan the sensor, and I thought, oh, I'll just leave it on and see if I can start it up with the new device. So late Friday afternoon, 27th, I got a low glucose alarm set phone. And I don't know how, but the thing started to work. It was just yeah. in time for me to call the company back and tell them that this had happened and ask them what had changed. They didn't know. Uh, thank you very much. So well, maybe other people will have similar stories. I don't know, but it seems like uh, the Freestyle Libra app is back on track. Thanks. Thank you, CC. Yeah, I think you continually being in touch with this company is probably what's keeping them on their toes around accessibility. And that's the point. We've got to really keep on at companies. When something goes wrong, get in touch. And I think the best method, the best method is often not to go in all guns blazing and start, you know, demanding that everybody be fired and, you know, the company be closed or that we start, you know, sending in the lawyers. Just have a conversation. Explain what the issues are. If you can record your experiences, I think that often helps. Developers don't often understand how all the elements click together. You know, so, for example, I once got in touch with, a, a, this is what kind of taught me that lesson. I got in touch with a developer once and I said, look, you've got unlabeled buttons. And he sent me back a screenshot of the app and said, but all the buttons have got labels on them. You can see the words. Now, obviously, I couldn't. But and I, it was verified that, yes, the buttons were visually labeled. But obviously, they didn't have their labels in the background. And that was the problem. So once I sent him a screen recording of using the app and, and you know, essentially tapping on the button and him hearing that it just says button, it kind of made sense to him that the labels behind the scenes were not connected together and, and you no know, one obviously added on. And that did help. And it, it certainly helped in the, in, you know, making that app better. Um, it does seem though, CC, you're having a lot of trouble with this because, you know, every time you get in touch with me, every time I hear your, your voice, I think, oh no, here we go again. And, you know, this is a, this is such a serious issue. You know, this is your health we're talking about here. So I do worry about the fact that the accessibility in this keeps changing and you're losing sensors. Now, it's good if they're replacing the sensors. It's good if they're taking some ownership of that. And I think we have to say good on them for that. You know, they should, but that's exactly that's the least they should be doing. What they should really be doing is getting you in. They should actually bring CC into this and say, you know what? Whenever we make an update to the app, send it to CC first. If it doesn't work, listen to him and we'll get it fixed. Sometimes that's what you got to do, you know? Sometimes that's it. Uh, listen, thank you for your uh, feedback. As always, keep it coming. Feedback at doubletaponair.com. one 803 4567 After the break, I'll be joined by David Dicta. He's here to tell me 
all about ATIA. It's the Assistive Technology Industry Association. What does that mean? Uh, what is it doing this week? What's the conference all about? We're going to find out with David. He's the CEO, and uh, he joins me next here on Double Tap. Follow Double Tap on social media at Double Tap On Air and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts and email us feedback at doubletaponair.com. We'll be right back. This is Double Tap. Now, back to the show. Okay, let's find out about ATIA then. The Assistive Technology Industry Association is its full name. Their conference gets started today. And I am so pleased to be joined by the CEO of ATIA, David Digter. Thank you so much for coming on to Double Tap, David. It's great to be here and great to uh, be able to share about uh, ATIA. Yeah, I have to be honest, I've heard about this. Now, I live in the UK, so I uh, have heard a little bit about this uh, event every year, near enough, and uh, I've never been entirely sure what it's all about. So maybe you can help me uh, and tell me a little bit more about what ATIA is, uh, what it stands for, and uh, what it's going to be doing this year. Sure. So ATIA stands for the Assistive Technology Industry Association. We have been hosting a uh, an assistive technology event for 23 years. And it's been in Orlando every year uh, that we've hosted it. Uh, we had a couple of years where we did a second event in Chicago many years ago, but we stayed with the Orlando model. And uh, it's every January, every year, and it's just a fabulous, fantastic event. So what we do is we gather together um, pretty much most of the assistive technology manufacturers and companies and, 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 and developers, uh, we bring them all into our conference as exhibitors. And then our attendees of our event are uh, individuals with disabilities, families, consumers, and mostly practitioners and professionals um, who want to and need to learn more about assistive technology so that they can help folks with disabilities get the right technology into their own hands and make sure that what they need is matched properly and that they need to know about all of the tech. Um, often, the way I sometimes describe, and, and I know that I just was listening to some of your podcasts, um, you did a coverage of CES. So if you think about CES being you know, a lot of the new and the old technology across the board in the mainstream world, we are one of the largest events in the world bringing together all of that technology focused on disability. So assistive technology every year, the new, the old, the updated, and the upgraded, and all of the work that goes around supporting folks with disabilities and connecting them with that technology. So the event is happening from today, which is very exciting. And that's why I wanted to get you on today to, to learn all about it as, as we get into this uh, 2023 uh, edition of ATIA. It, what I noticed is that it's a hybrid event, essentially. It is in person, but it is also virtual as well. Uh, so talk me through that. Has that always been the case or is that a child of the pandemic? It's um, a it's actually a combination, but mostly a child of the pandemic, to use your term. Um, one of the things that we discovered um, early on, we had to shut our event down right after our 2020. We had a 2020 event. Uh, and then early in 2020, the pandemic hit um, right after our event. And we decided 2021 is a no-go. We're canceling it. We're going to go full-on virtual. Uh, we learned a lot in that year, and we had an incredible event virtually that was a lot of work. Um, but since that time, we've been expanding our online education and our virtual event um, since that time. So starting tomorrow, um, we have our live virtual event component, um, as well as in person, all of the live parts of the virtual event are delivered from the in-person event now. So from a hybrid, truly is hybrid. I mean, you know, and we have about 50 live sessions being streamed, some for a fee, and there is a free component. And I'll talk about that in a little bit, but um, folks can join in at any, at any point. And if they can't join in live, because for example, you're in the UK and the time zone is, you know, we're doing a 3.30 in the 
afternoon session on the East Coast, and you are already too late for you to join in from the UK. Um, they, everything will be recorded. Almost just about all will be recorded. And then what we do is we record other content from the conference and we drop it into the virtual event after the event. Um, and it's all recorded. And the folks who sign on for the virtual event can get access to all of that. It's over 100 sessions. And they get access to all of that content up until April, the end of April. Um, and all of it, for, for at least for domestically for the United States, there's continuing education credit that may be appropriate for folks all around the world. It may not be needed, but those things are connected to all of our education. To talk about the in-person event starting today um, and, and ongoing through Saturday, um, we are delivering a little over 300 education sessions. Um, they're one-hour sessions throughout the event. We have over 25 product demo sessions. All of those will be recorded and put on our YouTube channel. And we have about a little over 100 exhibitors in the exhibit hall. The cool thing about the virtual event, we're doing something new this year. One of the things that folks have missed a lot in the virtual experience, both companies and, and, and folks who go to virtual events, is kind of that exhibit hall experience. So we're doing something we're calling an exhibit hall crawl on Thursday and Friday afternoon uh, for one hour. And I, we're going to try, if the technology, I know you know a lot about technology, but technology works for us. We're going to live stream a walk through the exhibit hall, half of the hall one day, half of the hall the next, and introduce everybody on video to the companies that are in our exhibit hall and let folks get a little bit of an experience um, of what it feels like to be at ATIA, which is exciting to us that we're trying this and we're doing this. We'll see how it works. Everyone loves an exhibit hall. I know I do. And, you know, it's a great opportunity to just find out what's going on. Of course, the great thing about in-person events being back, you know, one of the challenges with virtual events is the social aspect. That's what a lot of people want to come for. And, you know, we can obviously talk about the the virtual aspect of it and, you know, the importance of that. And I think we can all recognise that it's important, I think, for these events to be virtual so that as many people around the world, around the US, wherever it is, can take part. But there is something to be said for in-person actually getting in front of people and talking to people, networking. That's a big part of this, right? You know, we have for a very long time highlighted multiple aspects about what makes our ATIA event so so popular. It, I no longer say it's an event of ATIAs. This is an event of the AT community. We happen to be hosting a very broad, wide community event. And part of what makes it what it, what it is, is that networking, that socializing, that connecting with people who are doing the same thing you're doing or looking for the same technology and trying to figure out solutions that are sometimes hard to figure out. And sometimes individuals with disabilities have unique needs and there aren't just easy, simple answers all the time. So the folks who come to the event are often I hear from them is they feel like they're at home. They're with their, their, their peers. They're with their buddies because so many people who work in our field often work in isolation in the organization or agency or school that they work in. They're, they're the only AT person there globally. This is a global phenomenon. And by coming to the virtual event, the way we've built our virtual event We've been fortunate that we've been able to use technology, Zoom is one of them, but open it up so that people can at least chit-chat with each other while a speaker is presenting in the chat room, offer up their own ideas in a, in a virtual environment so that they can connect to other people that way. Um, and it's been quite positive. Uh, it's Look, I wish I could say, oh, I planned all that out. Um, certainly, I didn't, and some of it's just the phenomena of, participants doing what they do, which is finding a way to connect. And, and that's the power of hosting an event that the community really is very much involved in. Uh, from the education programs, our speakers are unbelievable. They're just phenomenal, many of whom are just practitioners who are doing their thing, whether it be here in Boston where I live, they come from Boston, they come from all over the world. Um, and it's a, a, a 
percentage of it is from companies, but the vast majority of content are from consumers, from users of AP, from um, uh, to practitioners, to speech therapists, to teachers of visually impaired. I mean, just the whole gamut. Tell us about some of the, those keynote speakers then who whet our appetites a little bit and, and who we can, uh, you know, we, we can watch virtually or we, we can pay the fee for to, to be able to enjoy. Some of the free sessions are quite exciting. What we do is we deliver the free content is all content that is sponsored by our membership. Our membership are the companies that make AP. Some of them are, for example, Microsoft, Apple, and Google. They'll be delivering some live streamed and in-person sessions, kind of giving an overview of what's going on with the technology that they have built and the accessibility features and what's the latest and greatest. Um, and then others are specific AT companies um, that will deliver kind of a, a, a session. Uh, one of them is a session where they bring in some of their users to deliver some of that content. Um, I like to highlight one particular session that's free, that'll be live streamed, that'll be actually be live streamed to YouTube. So you don't even have to sign up for anything. You just go to the ATIA.org, um, our YouTube channel. Um, and that is something called the Prentke Lecture Award. It's a it's an award that is given annually to an, an augmented communication user, an AAC user. This is a person who uses technology to, to speak and to communicate. Um, and it's a it's a it's a nominated process and it's a reviewed process. That um, person who who gets selected, and this year we have somebody who's um, who's been selected. Her name is Ashley, and she's going to um, uh, present. And she'll talk about her own journey and her own discussion about how her intersection with AT, with, with accessible technology, and, and her success in life and how it helps her move forward. Um, and that's been that this, this lecture, ATI just recently took it on as kind of hosting this. This lecture has been going on for years and years. And it's, it's an awesome lecture for anybody. It's not just specific to a disability category. Um, it's important for us, uh, for everybody to understand the lived experience of folks with disabilities. I think you will 100% agree with me on that. Mm -hmm. And this is a, a story generally every year about someone who lives a very unique experience using um, communication technology. So I hope that folks join in for, for that part. Some of the other sessions, um, we have a handful of companies that host meeting rooms where they have sessions all day long. But then we have other sessions by other consumers. Um, we have a, an array of sessions by uh, the American Printing House for the Blind. They're hosting a pre-conference of the conference uh, for folks to learn more about a product called Code Jumper. Um, and that's been exciting for us to help host that because Code Jumper came out and was released right at the pan right before the pandemic and then the kind of the pandemic kind of kind of left it by the wayside because it's a it's a product on coding and it's a hands-on physical technology that you see that allows students who are blind and who are just generally disabled that doesn't have to be blind students to learn the basics of putting kind of the logic together to do coding and it's just you know it's a science technology it's a stem product so they're hosting some content around that and we're hoping that folks beyond just the vision impairment space, blind and low vision space, really look at this as a technology that can help uh, catapult coding for students with disabilities and non-disability and not having disabilities and really bringing it together um, uh, for, for everyone. I have to ask you this question because I read a story recently about uh, apparently some um, government agencies in the U.S., looking at bringing blind people in as spies. And I thought this was absolute rubbish. I thought this is just made up nonsense, made up somewhere. And then I'm looking through your list of all the different companies and organizations that are exhibiting. And in there's the Central Intelligence Agency. And I'm thinking, what? Is is this real? <laughs> I don't know about the spy. I don't know about the spy part, right? But the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency, which is a government agency, is the kind of the spy agency. I think in the UK it's called what MI6 or something like that, or whatever your yeah. version of that is. 
they have been coming for years to ATIA because they're interested in making sure that folks know that folks with disabilities can work for the CIA, that it is not locked, that folks with disabilities are not locked out of working for government agencies. And some government agencies have, you know, budget and have the wherewithal to be doing recruiting and to communicate about their agency in this community. Um, And so that's what they're doing at ATIA. Whether or not they're actively seeking blind folks to spy, I don't know that that would be an accurate thing at all. (laughs) That sounds sounds a little fun conspiracy theory, but um, they are, you know, they are recruiting and they want to communicate the openness of that agency. Um, And the whole government, the federal government hires a lot of folks with disabilities in the U.S. and globally, um, in the Western world at least, um, there's a a lot of um, countries that do, the governments do employ many people with disabilities and have the uh, um, have that as a as a part of their mission, thankfully. Um, so that's kind of what's going on with the CIA. <laughs> it's funny that you spotted their name somewhere, but yes, that's true. They do come to ATIA, and people ask me every time, "What is the deal with the CIA being at ATIA?" <laughs> it, it just it, it blew my mind when I, I read the name. I thought, "Wow!" But actually, there's a bigger point here, and you were alluding to that, which is employment opportunities and you know this is a good time as well for blind people to be at an event like this to learn about what capabilities there are for roles and jobs and you know again not just blind people but for anybody i I remember growing up myself in a school where you know the, the guidance officer in my school would tell me that you know my options were secretarial jobs and that was it and don't even think about doing anything else and, you know, it would have been great if my teachers had had an event like this to go to, to learn about what is possible. That's often the challenge, isn't it? To, to explaining to people what actually, what blind people can actually do. You know, there's been a lot of work um, by the um, w- World Health Organization, WHO and the UN and other agencies and organizations to, to get assistive technology into the low and middle income countries in the world. Um, but we still, and I usually use this example. Um, if you are unable to walk, it is most commonly understood globally that there is a product or a, a, a device that can help you to get from point A to point B. And that would be in our world, a wheelchair. And most people, even in the most remote places, understand if you can't walk, you need a wheelchair. Now, whether or not somebody can get a wheelchair is a different story. Here's the part that's really often sometimes disheartening, um, sometimes just shocking, because depending on where you're talking about, if you're visually impaired, if you're blind, um, it isn't always assumed that uh, people under, it isn't always clear that people understand that that child or adult who's, who's blind or, or, or has low vision, um, that there are technologies to allow them to even use a computer. There's still a lack of understanding that somebody who is blind can't can use a computer. Now, I hope that's never true in the United States. I hope that's never true anywhere, but it is accurate. And, and it gets even more um, challenging when you start getting into cognition and cognitive disabilities, when you start getting into issues of speech and communication, um, you know, those technologies that support folks with that range of disabilities, um, they're just not enough awareness that they even exist, let alone that, you know, whether you can afford it or not or all those issues. So it's our mission to build out um, the largest following and the largest kind of connectivity to all the technologies that is possible and support a lot of other organizations in doing so. Because no one organization can spread this message themselves, right? You do it through through uh, through your podcast. We do it through our event and through other mechanisms. But it needs to be an all-out effort, even when, when we're just and we're still. I think we have such a long way to go. Yeah, I can only agree with that one hundred percent. I think we have a long way to go, and you know, even when people. 
you know, in a conversation we've just had on the show just in the past few days talking about gaming, for example, and someone saying, well, you know, blind people don't play games. So, you know, the, the, the word video is in the title, so why would you bother? And that's still an attitude today in 2023. You know, people have said to me, how do you watch television? Because surely you get nothing out of it. Not realising that there's this thing called audio description that, you know, fills in the blanks. And, you know, it just, it, it, we have got such a long way to go. But the, the the point is that the work must continue because that's how we educate. And need, the needle is moving a little bit, but the needle is clearly moving. We can certainly see that in the technology space, right? So we have, and I kind of put together a, I often will say that there's an ecosystem that makes all this stuff work, right? And that involves advocacy organizations. It involves businesses that make the technology. It involves practitioners. It involves consumers who need to be their own self-advocates as well. It involves everybody. It's, it involves government agencies and government policies that have both the the, the, the carrot and the stick, as we say here, I don't, I don't know if that's a common thing in the UK, yep, yep. Um, but, you know, government agencies have to um, have to say, hey, here's the incentive. Here's the policy. Here's the kind of standards you have to follow and please implement them. Often we see that now in emerging accessibility standards for web and for, um, for e-commerce sites and for software, um, that, that, that those things have to be accessible. But then... There needs to be the other part, which is if you don't do it, here's the trouble you're going to get in so that like consumers and advocates can turn around and point the finger and say, hey, you need to do this stuff. It's the law and you're going to get in trouble. You're either going to get sued in this country, very heavy lawsuit functions. And, and I don't necessarily think that it's, it's all healthy, um, but it needs some of that so that we can push that needle further along faster. Um, and it's it's just it's critical and it's important. One of the things around some of the laws and accessibility, we spend some time as an organization partnering with a whole lot of organizations to push some U.S.-based legislative activity, um, and 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 a lot of that focuses around students with disabilities getting assistive technology that they need. Um, some of it focuses on areas that we in this country we lack. Um, support for low vision for especially for seniors a low vision technologies for seniors um, and we support a lot of the advocacy work trying to change these laws it's slow going um, but it's worth every bit of money and energy that we put into it because in the end if it works it supports a whole bunch of folks I want to ask you a little bit about Braille because it's an interesting topic. It comes up a lot here on the show. And, you know, from my point of view, I think it's fair to say technology is saving Braille. Um, but, you know, where do you see Braille? Because I'm looking through the, the list of exhibitors. There are companies there representing Braille and Braille devices. Is that still as big a deal? And is it something that is being taught enough in schools to blind children to, in order to keep it going? You're bringing up a really important topic um, and that the, every community needs to understand the importance. This is my opinion, but it's also a professional opinion as well out there, an agreed upon opinion. Students who are blind, um, who learn Braille, are more successful than students who are blind that don't learn Braille. And it's pretty easy to understand why that may be true. Um, students who learn Braille become more efficient readers and become more efficient in literacy and become more efficient at consuming uh, literature and reading content. And in order to make your way through school in a positive way, you need to consume an awful lot of literature and math and everything else. And so Braille is a powerful tool to consume content and, and, and educational materials and um uh and 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 then to to write and to be literate and be a writer as well um so i'm a proponent that we need to do everything we can to support braille literacy um because braille literacy supports literacy in general and mathematics skills and everything else that being said, I think the technology is changing. 
Um, I see the introduction of some new technology, which I think you might be alluding to. There is some new technology about with uh, when it comes to dynamic Braille displays. So that's the digital version of a display of Braille. So you don't have to have everything on a piece of paper and have these really big books of text or of, uh, of your favorite trashy novel. Um, you can, you know, you can get it as a digital format and read it in either a single line of Braille. And now what's emerging is multi-line Braille. Um, and uh, that's emerging as a new way of displaying content, uh, along with tactile information. So images and, and be able to display images uh, immediately, as opposed to waiting for some uh, embossed system to be able or some tactile system to be able to um, print something and then get it into the hands of somebody who's a student, especially. Um, so Braille is, yes, Perkins Braillers are still alive and well all over the world. So I've traveled a lot in my personal life. I've traveled a lot professionally. I've been to a lot of schools for the blind in different regions of the world, um, especially in some countries that are pretty low-income places. And Perkins Braillers are in every school that I've ever been in for the blind. And it's really powerful and really important. And I think that, that, that you know, teaching students who are blind Braille, the Perkins Brailler, I think, will continue to have its role in that process. Um, but then again, there is new technology. Um, the hard part for low and middle income countries is that that technology is going to be really expensive. The hard part for um, Europe and Canada and the United States and, and other countries that have money is that product is going to be probably really expensive. And and the end result is governments have to step in and support that because it will be even more efficient to use and learn Braille. One of the challenges for students is getting books, getting textbooks in an efficient manner. And this is a challenge everywhere in the world. How do you get a textbook in an efficient manner when it's a brand new release in August? You know, the publisher releases a textbook in August. Students starts at the beginning of September, and you got to have a you know, it's a it's a it's a mountain of of volumes of Braille, and it has to be produced for you know X number of students, and it has to be converted from from a textbook to a to a Braille file set. Um, and imagine if it's a simple simpler to just have a digital file that can easily convert and then you hand it to the student and they can read it on a tablet um, as, as Braille, not as an audiobook. It's been fascinating talking to you today, David. Remind people where they can find the virtual conference because, of course, as it started, I don't imagine many people can jump on a plane and get to Florida that quickly, unless, of course, nope. you're on the way there. Um, but, you know, if people want to uh, take part virtually... How do they do that? So for the virtual event, um, there are, there are um, it's ATIA.org, and you go to the, the, the navigation for conference and virtual event. Um, for the free bundle of content, it's ATIA.org slash backslash free virtual bundle. Um, so you just go there, or you just go to the website, and you'll find free virtual bundle. Um, for those folks who are near or in the Orlando area or in Florida or want to take a drive from southern Georgia or wherever, they're, if they're nearby, I don't know how many of your listeners are there, you can come Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday half a day for the free exhibit hall. So our exhibit hall is free all week long, and, um, and it opens up Wednesday afternoon, tomorrow afternoon. Um, and, and tomorrow evening, actually, about 5.30. So, and then it goes Thursday and Friday all day and half a day Saturday. And that's atia.org.org slash free exhibit hall. Um, you can just go and register. Um, you have to be registered, but it doesn't cost anything. The virtual bundle is really what you're all interested in, I think, everybody listening. If you want to register for the the, the Full virtual event, you just go to ATIA.org and look for the free, for the uh, virtual event um, as part of the, the conference. Um, the free bundle is free virtual bundle. And um, it's, you know, we look, we're excited for everybody to join in. We announced the free bundle uh, a few weeks ago in a couple of different um, 
uh, in a couple of different places, social media wise. And we were in awe of how many people signed up for it. Um, and it just speaks to the challenge everybody has in reaching the vast world of people who would be interested. And what was really exciting to me was how many folks from Australia and Southeast Asia and from Africa and other parts of the world who are signing up for the free virtual bundle. Um, those sessions will mostly all of, I think almost all of them, there's one I think that won't be recorded, um, but all of them will be recorded and uh, and available for, for, for months. So it's not like you have to be there at the time of the live stream. You can access the content at any time you want. Um, and that's what's powerful about hosting a virtual event. The other thing that we've, I, I want to go back to your question about the virtual event, if I can. One of the powerful pieces that we found about the virtual event is that organizations, whether they're from European organizations, Canadian organizations, or from uh, or anywhere in the United States, what we've found is that they are sending the usual team of practitioners and professionals to the in-person event. But because we have the virtual event, they're able to add on whole bunch more of their team members who need to learn about AT and let them have access to the virtual event. It's become a powerful way for them to increase professional development around assistive technology for folks. It's also become a, a really powerful tool for families and parents who want to learn a little bit more about the technologies that might work for their son or daughter, for their partner, for their husband or for, for a family member, for a, for a parent, um, you know, we're all, as we all age, we're, we have family members who may need technology. There are all kinds of, 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 um, of disabling conditions that creep into our lives as we get older. Uh, and folks are trying to figure out how to support their loved ones. Uh, and, and that's powerful to see them coming to that virtual event as well. Sounds like a fantastic event, a great resource to learn about as well. Uh, David, thank you so much for coming on and telling us all about it. Thank you so much. I hope that uh, it's valuable to everybody. And we'll bring you more updates from ATIA as the event continues. Uh, thank you to David. Thank you to you for listening and for all your feedback as well. Keep it coming. Feedback at doubletaponair.com or one eight seven seven eight zero three four five six seven is our listener line number. Catch you again tomorrow. Love Double Tap? Did you know we're on the TV too? Check out brand new episodes of Double Tap TV on AMI-tv every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Or binge on all episodes online at ami.ca forward slash Double Tap. We're also on YouTube. Search for Double Tap to catch our episodes there too. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.